You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. When I was in graduate school, I had wrapped up my seminary experience and I was hungry for more. I'd been exposed to family systems theory. So in grad school, I took as many family systems classes as I could. And it was in one of those classes that I was exposed to a concept called second order change that absolutely fascinated me and that I've been using in my leadership and my ministry for two decades now. The big idea in second order change is not so much that you focus on the problem, but that you focus on your attempted solutions to the problem and how those attempted solutions are actually making the problem worse. It's a fascinating theory, and uh, a couple of episodes ago, Brendan Reed and I covered it on the podcast when he and I chatted about it, but I thought it would be fun to go back to the source. So a few months ago, I reached out to my old seminary professor, Jack Holland. Not that Jack is old, but it was from a long time ago. Jack is a marriage and family therapist, a licensed therapist. He's also a professor at Emmanuel Seminary in Tennessee. I'm one of those people that when I think back on my seminary experience, I have overwhelmingly positive regard. I found my seminary education to be incredible, and Jack was definitely part of that. So we started the episode, me just asking him to explain second order change and to explain how it works and why it works. What was interesting to me is Jack really moved us into new territory where he wanted to talk about narrative therapy. And that reminded me that what I try to do on this podcast is study the nature of transformation. How are we changed? How do we experience freedom? How do we experience peace? The gospel has a lot to say about it, and psychology has a lot to say about it, and I'm interested in the intersection of both. So as Jack led from talking about second-order change into narrative therapy, I became fascinated by the idea that what he was teaching me about narrative therapy is actually a gift to a leader as well, a gift to help us be less anxious. So I began just by asking Jack about second order change and then we went from there. Hope you enjoy. Um, yeah, and, and this is going to be me thinking out loud more than anything. Excellent. Um, first of all, I think it might be helpful to consider what first order change is. Okay. Um, you probably remember this illustration because I haven't got a new one. But <laughs> when I teach systems, I talk about the air conditioning system that um, regulates the temperature in the house. Today in Johnson City, it's a little cool. Um, and so I have the heat on. It's set at 71 but the temperature doesn't stay at 71 in this room. It's constantly changing. It'll cool off a little bit to probably around 69. And then something in the thermostat tells it it's too cold in here. And so the heat comes on and then it warms up until it gets to probably 72 or three, and then it turns off again. And so the change is constant, but it still stays the same. And that's the, that's the, key statement I think about first order change is that things may be different but they're still staying the same and so in a family uh, I can remember one family in particular who had a son who was in all kinds of trouble and was the identified patient in the family well when he finally got 
things straightened out in his own life, he had a sister who just became a train wreck. And always before that, she'd been the, the ideal child. And so in that family system, things had changed, but they were still the same. They hadn't fundamentally changed who they were um, and how the, how the, the system functioned. And so second order change is change that is a change in the entire system. Um, in my, in my, uh, heating and cooling system change would be second order change would be if, if the, uh, heat pump broke, that'd be a bad second order change, but it would definitely be a change in how the room heats and cools itself. And so it second order changes is, is a, is a completely different systemic pattern than what's been been occurring from a christian perspective i feel like conversion is second order change it's a it's a completely different direction in which your life is going yeah. and the other thing i would say is um gregory bateson and probably paul Václavic and uh, don jackson some of those original marriage and family therapy pioneers were the ones that first started talking about second order change. Yeah. That's where you exposed me and my fellow students to it was yeah. the Václavic Weekland yeah. book called change. Yeah. Uh, and then I don't remember if you assigned it or if I just went on a bender, but, um, brief therapy with intimidating cases that follow up. Oh, I haven't seen that. Huh? Oh, oh, it's amazing. Who's um, that by? Same guys, Weekland and Václavic, oh. the mental research Institute guys. Okay. Huh. Basically, the accusation against second order change was this only works with cases that aren't that serious. So they published this okay. tiny, skinny book in their classic, playful way, and they just packed it with the worst possible scenarios that they've dealt oh. with. Okay. Um, but you mentioned when you were describing that in passing, you mentioned the family and the identified patient. That's probably uh -huh. a new term. Just give us a little explanation okay. of that. Um. Basically, it's the person get, that gets all the blame in the family. The The family brought me that their son and said, here, fix him. It's him. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't just his behavior. It was what the family, it was the dance the family was doing. But I yeah. think we often identify when we don't see things from a systemic perspective, we identify, we identify the, the person who's the problem. And I believe the system has the problem, not the person. Yeah, right. That's a classic systems theorist approach. And uh -huh. a, a lot of our listeners are pastors or, or organizational leaders. Okay. And the big idea is that exactly the same theory works in a, any team. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So with with first order change, if, if a leader is seeing somebody as the problem, uh -huh. so here would be another way to say it, maybe Jack, see what you think of this. If you have a problem with another staff member, that's the problem. First order changes, well, I'm going to avoid being around them. Right. That doesn't actually change the problem. But second order change might involve actually noticing your own complicity in the problem. What are you doing Certainly. to keep yeah. the dynamic alive? Yeah. Yeah. It's, we learn to do a different dance instead of the same old thing. Yeah. So how do you help people notice when they're in a stuck pattern or in your metaphor, when the dance isn't working, mm -hmm. how do you help people notice that the dance is the problem, not the dance partner? 
I had a professor who used to say, and I believe he's right, insight doesn't lead to change. And so you could, and I've had in, in marriage and family therapy, I had couples where I'd make these observations about the dance they were doing. And they'd say, you are exactly right. That is exactly what we do to each other. And they just keep right on doing it to each other. Yeah. That's so, Ed Friedman. Uh, Ed yeah. Friedman says insight doesn't work for people unmotivated to change. Yeah. Right. So I don't necessarily point it out. Um, one of the place where I think I've probably gone the most since, uh, you and I were together is, is working with narrative therapy ideas. Um, particularly by focusing on the idea that the person's not the problem. The problem is a problem and the, and the person has a relationship with the problem. And so when it's, when it's externalized in that way, we can then sort of talk about you, you're having this problem with a coworker. Um, maybe it's, let's call that problem frustration. So how do you like, how do you relate to frustration? How would you like to relate to frustration? If frustration wasn't, uh, keeping the two of you angry at each other and not even able to be in the same room, where would frustration be? And so to just talk about it, uh, as externalized rather than something that, that is within them is one of the things that I'm probably the most excited about. Yeah, so that way people aren't seeing the other person as the problem. Right. They're seeing the other person as an ally with them right. against mm -hmm. the externalized problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a great book called, um, it's by, oh man, I'm losing the name now. Uh, Dwayne Bidwell called Engaging Relationships, I believe. But he is a narrative uh, marriage and family therapist, uh, theologian, teaches somewhere out west. Uh, wonderful book on um, how even in couples therapy, rather than focusing on the, the problem in the couple, you focus on the problem between the couple and they come together to work on it. Yeah, and I really do think that's translatable to any organizational leadership. Oh, yeah, like, I do that's, too. That's been the big light bulb for me when I did my chaplaincy and then when I took some classes with you, it, it took me a while to realize that those principles all work in any team, not right. just my own family. Sure. So let's dive a bit more into second order change and then let's talk a bit more and learn a bit more about narrative therapy. Okay. Um What's what's Lewick and Weekland suggest that the two signs that you need second order change are when your solutions are try harder hmm. or more of the same. Right. Uh, where have you seen that play out, either in counseling or in an organization? Um, the most simple illustration I can think of is in my own life. Um, we have a daughter. Uh, since you were here, I think we adopted. Uh, a daughter from China, wonderful gift in our lives. The best thing that I think we've ever done, but she was 10 months when, when we adopted her. And I can just remember, um, being with her, particularly this, the, the, the thing happened in Walmart the most often where she'd be in the grocery cart and she'd just reach out and grab something and we'd get to the, 
checkout line and she's got five different toys in there that we didn't know she was going <laughs> to have us buy. Yeah. And so, you know, we tried all kinds of things to get her to stop. And what, what I found was that we tried harder and harder and you can, you know, Lydia, if you, if you continue to do that, we're going to leave Walmart and Lydia, stop it. I'm not going to tell you again. And, and you can just hear it escalating through the store. And, uh, Finally, I just realized I'm working a whole lot harder to get her to not take things off the shelf than she is. How can I make it her responsibility? Yeah. And so I simply, the next time we went to Walmart, I just said, Lydia, if you if you choose to take things off the shelf, you're choosing to leave Walmart. We won't talk about it. It's your choice. So I'll follow whatever you want to do. And we got in there. She reached out, took something off the shelf. I picked her up and carried her out of the store. Um, she was screaming the whole way. But, um, that was a different, that was a different tool than we often, if a ham, if the hammer doesn't work, we get a sledgehammer out. Uh, and so that was a, a way of doing it differently. And I think in ministry, um, and in other kinds of systems, when we're frustrated, we tend to try harder what's already not working. Yeah. I think that's a great illustration because I, I like how you mentioned that she's screaming as you leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second order change guys always say, oh, you should always expect sabotage. It's not that yeah. everyone's going to love it. Sure. How many trips to Walmart until she stopped that pattern? Um, that was pretty much it. Yeah. She knew we were serious. Yeah. yeah. She's like, wait. And now she has to figure out what to do. Yeah. 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 And I like and that it too, because it could get worse. It just won't stay the good. same. The promise right. isn't that you're going to, it's not mm-hmm. Disneyland, but it won't right. stay stuck. And the best part of it was that it took me out of being responsible to keep her from taking things off the shelf and helped her be responsible. And so, you know, I think it was a good, I just, I'm lucky to have walked into it, but I think it was a good tool for her in other ways in her life. Yeah. The, the second order change guys, I, I think the genius of it is um, they don't focus so much on the problem they teach you how to pay attention to how your attempted solutions aren't working. Right. right. Yeah. And, and I, that's I found what it, a lot of their interventions were always just kind of crazy things. Um, <laughs> yeah. Remember there's one by Milton Erickson where a guy was an alcoholic and Erickson told him uh, in the counseling session said, I don't want you to stop drinking. I want you to go get a drink every time you want. But every time you go, you have to go to one bar farther away than the last one. And uh, he just changed the alcoholic's relationship to alcohol by changing the pattern. Yeah, they. I think it's why it's so fun to read because they really do enjoy absurdity as yeah. one of the tools against chronic anxiety. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, in the brief therapy book, I think it's chapter two. Uh, these adult parents bring in their adult um, anorexic daughter. Mm. and uh, they can't get her to eat, you know, and of course yeah. the more of the same and try harder is the more she won't yeah. eat, the harder they try to get her to eat. And right. they start threatening her, you know, you're going to die. And, and uh, they drag her into therapy. And you mentioned the identified patient. Sure. The ther- I think it was Weakland. The therapist says to the adult daughter, do you want to be here? And she says, no, I'm fed up with my parents telling me how to live. So they, they send her home and they cure her anorexia just by working with the adult parents. Yeah. Uh, and the absurdity was they had to coach them to forget to feed her. 
yeah. it took quite a while. And, uh, and of course the real problem wasn't that she wasn't eating. The problem was she's the only sibling still at home. She has no autonomy over her life except what yeah. she puts in her body. And yeah. so over my, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to choose. And the more you make me eat, the more I have to work to not. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good illustration of kind of moving toward the problem. Friedman has a story similar to that in generation to generation of the, the daughter who is depressed and she just stays in her room all the time. And mom and dad are working as hard as they can to get her to come out and be happy and all those kinds of things. And Friedman sends them in and says, I think you ought to go in there and tell her to get some rest. She looks really tired. And so he's moving toward the problem. Um, the illustration that students hate the most in Friedman, I always get pushed back on it, but it illustrates it so well. This guy is, a, is afraid that his wife is having an affair with her boss and they're going on a trip together to Florida. And the guy, the, the husband's just beside himself trying to talk his wife out of going, just trying to, you know, all the pressure to hold her close just causes her to distance from him more and finally Friedman says I think you should go to the travel agency and get some brochures of things that they might do while they're in Florida together <laughs> and it can it just takes him out of the triangle and lets the wife be responsible for her own behavior yeah that's right and your students don't like it because it violates our sense sounds of morality like yeah it sounds like I'm encouraging an affair yeah which of course what the genius of Friedman and, and you pushing on the students is who can control what she's going to do. Right. That's part of the right. challenge. I think of church leaders is we actually think we have more control than we really do in people's lives. Yeah. And in actuality, his behavior of trying to get her to not have the affair is making it more likely that she will. explorations in narrative therapy particularly uh like i'm fascinated with here's my thing jack as, as i start a sentence and then stop at mid-sentence i think a light bulb went on for me that church leaders and therapists are trying to accomplish the same thing which is transformation yeah. mm-hmm. and that's where i went on a bender of what tools that the therapists use that are translatable to a leader mm-hmm. without doing damage obviously uh therapists have a level of skill and training that a leader shouldn't try to access but talk talk us through narrative therapy what you love about it um i think one that really applies very well to um pastoral care in particular is just the idea of um a position of not knowing uh is kind of a fundamental stance that the counselor assumes for herself. Um, I may have seen a problem that a 
couple or family brings to me, I may have seen it a thousand times before, but I've never seen it through their eyes. And so I don't know. They're the experts on their problem, not me. And being in that position of not knowing allows me to assume that maybe this problem is different than all the times I've seen it before. It's different for them because for, they're the ones that have it this time. And so just trying, that helps me to listen better, I think. Uh, it helps us to, and these are good skills for, for pastors, it helps us to slow down and uh, not be too quick to give solutions, um, but to actually hear what's happening for people. And it also helps us to practice just a ministry of presence, to just be present and hear the problem hear the pain from people's perspective rather than out of our own anxiety, trying to uh, fix it for them. So that's a key for me. When I was in your class, you made us write down the values that were going to guide our pastoral care. Huh. And uh, number one for me was, was what I learned from you, which was take the problem as seriously or more seriously than the person in front of you. Huh. And yeah. I can't tell you how incredibly helpful that's been because I do think, particularly if a church leader is in the habit of preaching, it's almost like our brain is conditioning us. And in Western church culture, the congregation puts an expectation on us to know what to do yeah. or to be a top-down expert. Right. And so what you just shared about narrative therapy and every case having its own unique situation and the people coming in being the experts, I, I just immediately think of that golden rule of always take someone's problem more as seriously or more seriously than yeah. they do. Yeah. That has helped me so much because I think what I do is if somebody comes into my presence and they have an overwhelming problem, I get overwhelmed, but I'm not aware that I'm overwhelmed. Mm. And I then shrink their problem down to a manageable size and then I give pithy yeah. advice. But the capacity to be, I think you were describing a power of curiosity. Sure. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, de-escalates my anxiety, makes me able. Church leaders, when I work with them, this is what blows their mind the most. The idea that their impulse to act is often an anxious response, not a caring one. Sure. Right. Yeah. Very much so. What else do you have for us on that? Um, I think... Because because I'm coming from a position of not knowing, but assuming that, that the family or the individual is the expert, that means that I don't solve it for them. My expertise, hopefully, would be in having a conversation that extends the story and helps us, this is a perspective from narrative therapy, it helps us to find untold stories Perhaps there are instances where um, the father whose daughter is being a problem in Walmart has experienced times when when he really didn't get frustrated with her when things didn't escalate. So I want to hear about those stories and I want to see if those stories fit or can kind of shape the narrative of the new problem and can shape their relationship to the new problem. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're um, loosening the tight grip on what is true and opening up right. possibilities. Sure, because there are always stories that haven't been told. And and it sounds like you're also implying that the client coming in 
has made meaning out of one story and maybe projected it onto this story or something like that. Yeah. I think that's very much akin to the idea in uh, second order change that we keep using the same when talking loud doesn't work, we talk louder. Yeah. Um, we keep using the same tool over and over again. Um, narrative therapy assumes that uh, when people are, are in the midst of a problem, of an oppressive problem, all they see is they develop tunnel vision and there's no way out of this problem. I don't know if you remember, but the story I've used my entire teaching career is of the little boy that... Uh, was sent to me, brought to me by his mom, who'd been basically diagnosed by his school as hyperactive attention deficit, and she refused to put him on medication. And kind of this, from a narrative perspective, the story about him was that he was a bad kid, and the school believed it. He was a troublemaker. Mom was having a hard time believing it, but she was embarrassed, and he believed it. He thought he was just a troublemaker, and so. My first question when I met with him was, are there ever times when you don't get in trouble? Because the whole story, everyone who was talking about the problem, about the little boy saw him as a problem. And the story that wasn't, be told, wasn't being told was times when he wasn't a problem. Mm, that's really the times when he didn't get in trouble. It's really powerful. You, you're modeling for us uh, what I think is a really powerful tool of reframing. That's what you're doing. Yeah. But you're also f almost flipping the other tool that actually you taught me was the miracle question. Yeah. It's just another way into that same idea of, sure. okay, you're coming in with all these assumptions, but let's test those assumptions and see we're not sure. blowing them off. We're not, we're taking them seriously, but we are yeah. seeing what else is true that maybe we've forgotten sure. about. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. Hi friends, here's the thing. I don't believe life change happens by reading a book or listening to a podcast. I think those are great entry tools, but if you want to experience profound transformation, you have to dialogue with people you trust. You have to test your assumptions about life and you have to bravely practice a new way of living. That's why in March 10th and 11th, 2020, right here in beautiful Colorado, I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience to help you do exactly that. For two days, we'll go over all the major concepts in managing leadership anxiety. You'll be sitting at round tables with lots of discussion, lots of interaction time to give you the opportunity to not only learn some principles and techniques, but put them into practice right there and then. That's why we're calling it a facilitated experience, not a conference. Conferences are great, but you often just sit and listen. And of course, sometimes you grab a group of friends to talk it through with. But this whole two-day experience is designed to get you interacting early so you can go from being managed by anxiety to managing it. For more information on what we'll cover and for tickets, visit stevecusswords.com. Well, 
Jack, I, I think um, I think you've put it off long enough. If you're willing to brace yourself like a man, it's time <laughs> to inflict upon you my gauntlet of anxiety questions that I ask every guest. All right. They have been described in the past as a combination of a proctological exam and a roller coaster ride. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't know whether it's down or been over, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to that end, um, what kind of leadership situations generate anxiety in your life? We don't need an exhaustive list, but just give us a couple. Um, I can, I know exactly. Um, when I have all the responsibility, um, and you were long gone, but I did a three-year stint as the dean at Emmanuel and learned a lot about myself. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, mm. I think in leadership, one of the hardest parts of being a leader is that um, you have to make decisions that people are not going to agree with. People tend to assume the worst when they don't know the whole story. And as a leader, sometimes you can't tell the whole story. Right. That's and good. That makes me anxious. Because uh, let me dig on that one a little then, Jack. Is Does it make you anxious because you feel misunderstood or you like being liked or how would you name I like, that? I like being liked. Yeah. I, I'm a, on the Enneagram, I'm the poster child for nine. I'm a peacemaker. And you're, I think what's particularly difficult is you're a genuinely nice guy. <laughs> right. Like I think people who know you would just say that's true. And so when you have to make a difficult decision and you can't share information that comes under threat. Sure. Yeah. Very much. Uh, the next question, I, I think, I think uh, caregivers in general, church leaders, we're so others focused. Sometimes we're the last to know when we are not well. Mm -hmm. How do you know when you're not well? Um, when I'm the dean. <laughs> 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 um, I think when I become kind of obsessed with, with, uh, trying to figure out what trying to diagnose what's happening over overthinking situations is a sign that I'm probably stuck in something. Okay. You try to, uh, worry your way to peace, for yeah, example. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, the, this one, <laughs> I think I'm going to know the answer then. So, um, criticism is hard, I think for every leader, but I think what we weren't warned about in seminary is cumulative criticism. Like, I feel like when I got into leadership, I was prepared for criticism. I was well-trained. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I get it. But what I wasn't prepared for is either a season where it's intense mm -hmm. or multiple fronts. Have you had a season like that? Yeah. Um, when I was in ministry in particular, there were, it was a rough day. There was a day when uh, there were three of us on staff the elders decided to terminate two of the ministers and they kept one and I was the one they kept. And there was a group of people that met with the elders that afternoon, not to complain about the firing of the other two, but their question was, why did you stop? <laughs> and so the, <laughs> I had the target on my back because the other two guys were gone. I was all that was left. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? Um, I was how old was I? 
it would have been probably 34 or 5, 6 maybe. Yeah, okay. Like yeah. Yeah, I've now been a lead pastor for 14 years, and yeah. um, it is a different chair than any other pastoral yeah, it chair. It sure yeah. is. And it's, it seems like, it feels to me like um, you just have to realize what comes with the job and somehow yeah. Yeah. for a while there, I tried to not feel the hurt. I think I'm now in the last five years, I'm thinking, I think it's healthier to feel the hurt and then work harder on recovery. Yeah. 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 So then the final two questions have to do with being proactive about emotional health. Yeah. Um, I think every one of us have activities or people or places in our life that just make us feel fully mm -hmm. human do you have a couple, whether it's hobbies or relationships? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, well, you know this, you live in Colorado um, and you've lived in Tennessee, you've lived in Johnson City. It's it's hard to not just kind of feel the beauty of this place. Uh, and that's helpful to me. My family is, is helpful. Uh, when we decide to adopt Lydia, I told Heather I'll be 65 when she graduates from high school and uh, she's graduating from high school next year. So wow. it got here fast, but wow. just the joy of her, I'm teaching her to drive right now. And you know, that's just fun. Um, and then the other thing that's really important to me, I have three friends that uh, we were in college together and I now have, I've known those three guys longer than anyone in my life except for my two sisters and we still get together at least once a year and just be st stupid and yeah that just i think you have to have times to just be playful yeah, yeah. and the other thing i think when things are really hard it's important to have rituals where you just can put it down um when I told you Heather's a palliative care chaplain at the hospital and she has a really, really tough one that she just can't seem to let go of. She doesn't leave the hospital without going by the chapel. She lights a candle, prays for the family and says, God, I have to leave these people here because I need to be with my own family. And just kind of those having a ritual that helps us to kind of experience um, the release is important, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And in some ways, that's managing ourselves in the same kind of second order way. We can, even in trying to manage our own anxiety, we can get caught up in trying the same old things that have never worked to help us manage it. Well, and yeah, that's also hinting at some Bowen and Friedman that yeah. if you want to bring change, working on yourself gets further that's than right. any other. Yeah. yeah. And so I, uh, kind of working on yourself is being playful with yourself rather than trying harder. I appreciate that comment. That's, that's what we both imply, but I appreciate you saying yeah. it is, is, um, not, not being earnest. The importance right. of not being earnest is right. essential work. Right. Oh, that's good. And what, that's what, a spiritual discipline to, to not let ourselves dwell on the things that are hard for us sometimes to be able to let them go. I, I like that. I, I do think too many people, when they think of the spiritual disciplines, they think of earnestness and reading Leviticus and, you yeah. know, but whimsy and playfulness. And in my opinion, uh, making a concrete list of the gifts that God has given us hmm. that we don't get to use for ministry or for others. Yeah. That's good. And for me, one of them is fly fishing for me. And uh, uh, 
one of them's playing acoustic guitar or, you know, just oh, these yeah. playful things. Yeah. I know when I was in ministry, especially if I preached a sermon that I just felt like saw somebody's eyes roll out there or <laughs> they, that person usually tells me it was a good sermon and they didn't say anything. I could easily obsess over that for the rest of the day. Yeah. And I realized that's not helpful to me. It's not helpful to the church. And so just trying to learn to discipline myself to not go back over it over and over all day or somebody confronts you and criticizes you and you just kind of dwell on what I wish I'd said. And, you know, just replaying the argument over and over in your mind, that's just not helpful to me. And I have to be intentional about finding a way to let it go. Yeah. All right. The final question, um, my theology is that chronic anxiety and shame um, compete in the same space where we're aware of God. So I think it's difficult to notice God's presence when you're in a shame cycle or when you're chronically anxious. Huh. Uh, my theory is that anxiety is actually a spiritual dark force. and It, it kind of grabs us and then it puts us in a dark room of doom yeah. and we forget um, so I'm, I'm always fascinated by how to displace anxiety with love. Huh. Um, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Oof. Certainly from my family, but I think more importantly, and it's not always there. I pray help my unbelief a lot, a lot, mm-hmm. but, um, There's just something more after this life. I don't know what it is sometimes, but there's there's something that loves us in this universe. Uh, and I've I feel that sometimes. Yeah. I experience that. Yeah. And I and I don't understand it, but there are those holy moments every now and then where you just you just know um things are things are well. That you're loved. Yeah. Our uh, charismatic brothers and sisters, I think, would call it the manifest presence of God. That so, works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, this has been a delight. Thank you very much. I My I, pleasure I, entirely. Yeah. You probably don't realize what an impact you've had on my ministry, but a lot of uh-huh. your teaching shaped the way I pastor. So it's been so wonderful to read. Well, a lot of having you students shaped the way I teach. So <laughs> I, I remember you very well. You were one of the first students when I came to Emmanuel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Can I it tell was... a fast story? Oh yeah, sure. Do you do you remember the the tape that, that you and several students made when we had the counseling session? You were supposed to make a practice counseling session. Oh, you guys I made a blooper well. reel. Oh, did we really? I yeah. don't remember that. <laughs> it's really funny. I use it every now and then still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember you put us in groups of three. I yeah. think I was with Tabitha Hauser. Yeah. Uh, but I don't remember the third person I'm mortified to say. Yeah, I remember it's a guy. I can't I can't get his name, but I I, I think I remember. Yeah. Oh, very fun. But you oh, guys good. made a blooper reel where you did everything I had told you not to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds about that sounds about my twenty something year old self. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Uh, thank you, Jack. Thank you. Great visit visiting with you. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.